this morning, um, long before most of you were awake, our setup crew was already here to set this place up for us to come and worship. And uh, in fact, I just give you a little sense of what it's like for them. They had a flat tire. Uh, our church is all mobile, so like it's all packed into a couple of vans. And on the way here, they had a flat tire and got that thing changed and uh, got here a little bit later than normal. And everybody set it up and still made it on time. And I just want to thank those guys who set this place up for us every Sunday morning and uh, appreciate their work. And I also want to thank the people who work in children's ministry every week. I mean, just so gracious to work with our children and um, to care for them and minister to them. And what a sacrificial uh, task that they have. And, uh, and it's a joyful task for them as well, but I know it's a sacrifice. And would you show them your appreciation as well? With that. And last week, I made a boneheaded mistake. It was an egregious error, and I, I sincerely apologize for this. I, I, it was Veterans Day, and I did not take the time to honor our veterans who have served uh, and sacrificed so courageously just so that we could be here to worship freely uh, in the way that we do. If you're a veteran, would you, please, would you mind to please stand and just let us show our appreciation to you, please? Uh, appreciate that. Thank you. And I ask your forgiveness. Uh, it, please do not see that as in any way, shape, or form um, uh, a sense on my part that that's not important. Uh, it, it just, you know, in the process of trying to get a church up and running and stuff, sometimes you just forget stuff. And uh, I sincerely ask your forgiveness and appreciate what you do very, very much. I'd like to just say a word of prayer, if we could. Lord, I do want to thank you for the men and women that have served so courageously um, and so sacrificially on our behalf. Lord, I pray for your blessings upon them. I pray for, those, uh, pray for those that are here this morning, that they would know that they are appreciated. And Lord, I pray for those that are uh, serving now in places overseas, many of them separated from families. And Lord, we pray for their protection. And we pray that somehow the gospel would get to them wherever they are and that they would come to an understanding of, of your deep and profound love for them. Lord, we pray this morning that you would speak to us uh, through your word and pray that you would challenge us. And uh, we thank you for the honor of being able to, to study it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. By the way, I just want to mention to you that next week, uh, a guest worship leader is going to be here. His name is David Hampton. Some of you will remember David. David spoke to us, in fact, a number of weeks ago. He's going to come and lead worship here for us. And we're really excited about that. And then a few weeks later, David's going to come back and he's going to do a special, uh, he's, he's recorded a new Christmas CD, and he's going to come and he's going to do the music from that uh, for us uh, one Sunday morning in December. And we'll tell you more about that as you need to know about it. But uh, uh, very excited, so please uh, come back next week to hear uh, David Hampton. I want to welcome those of you uh, who are new to City Church, those of you who are listening to our podcast. We're starting a new series this morning. It's really, a, it's really kind of a mini-series because it's only going to last two weeks, but it's called The Kardashians. Uh, the Real Housewives, and One Ancient Psalm. And you may be wondering, why in the world would you do uh, a series like that? Well, I want you to understand that one of the core values of City Church is that we want to engage the culture. We, we think that if you really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you will be more engaged with the culture 
not less engaged with the culture. And the reason is, is that you can't really influence the culture for Jesus Christ if you don't understand the ideas that shape our culture. And as crazy as it may sound to some of you, I, I, and I, I listen, I know, this is, I know this sounds crazy, but the Kardashians and the Real Housewives are two of the biggest idea shapers in the world today. They, I, and I know that sounds like I'm over-exaggerating, but listen to this. Over 4 million people watch each of the Kardashian episodes per week, over 4 million a week. Kim Kardashian, the middle Kardashian sister, has just her alone, she has as many Twitter followers as some countries have people. Listen to this, over 15.5 million followers around the world. In 2010 alone, there were more internet searches for Kim Kardashian than there were for the words stock market, Tiger Woods, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber, or Barack Obama. As for the Real Housewives, they have fought, thrown drinks, yelled, and shopped their way to a franchise that includes six uh, shows based in six different locations around the United States, including... Orange County, New York, Atlanta, New Jersey, Beverly Hills, and Miami. Can you guess which one is most watched? Anybody? Atlanta. Now, I have no point. I don't, there's no point. I just want you to know it's Atlanta. I just thought that was an interesting thing. I don't know. I think you could summarize the, where we want to go in this little mini-series in this way. Everyone has to come to a decision about where they're going to get their ideas about reality. Everybody has to do that. Everybody's got to come to a decision about where they are going to get their ideas about reality. And since since our ideas about reality always have profound consequences in our lives, it makes sense that we would want to compare and contrast the Bible's view of reality with two of the biggest influencers in the world today. And specifically what I want to do in the next couple of weeks, I want to compare what the Bible has to say about happiness this week. What does the Bible say about happiness uh, compared to the Kardashians and the Real Housewives and what they say about happiness? And then next week, I want to look at what the Bible has to say about a life of substance compared to what the Kardashians and the Real Housewives would say about substance. And I want to do so by looking at one of the great pieces of ancient wisdom on these two subjects of happiness and substance. And it's found in Psalm 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 1 in the Old Testament and we'll look at Psalm 1 and we'll compare that to the things that the Kardashians and the Real Housewives say uh, about happiness this week. Okay, so we're talking about happiness. I want to make sure that nobody thinks that the idea of happiness is a trivial uh, subject, or that it's somehow beneath you. Because happiness is a very important issue, and the Bible addresses it uh, very frequently, uh, really. And what I'd like to challenge you to do as you listen to this today, and as you interact with this, I want, to, I want you to ask yourself, am I a fundamentally and consistently happy person? And if not, why not? And I'd like, to, like, to, like you to ask yourself, is it possible that if you're not a fundamentally and consistently happy person, is it possible that it could have to do with the ideas that you have acquired about happiness from uh, dubious sources? Because, you know, it all starts with your ideas, and then it manifests itself in behavior uh, and the way that you live your life, Okay. So is it possible that you have acquired some ideas about happiness from some very dubious sources? Let's do this. Let's, let's read Psalm 1 uh, in its entirety, and then we'll just 
we'll really just look in detail at the first half of the psalm today. But let's read the whole thing. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree uh, planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a, uh, it's a short but very profound psalm. In fact, I, I, would, I would challenge you uh, to memorize this psalm because I think the ideas in this psalm are so countercultural. I love, I love the vivid imagery of the psalm, but I also love how much ground it covers in such a short period of time. In fact, if you look at the, the contrast, leave that slide uh, up there. If you look at the contrast between the first word and the last word, the first word of the psalm is blessed, and then the last word of the psalm is perish. And between those two words of life and death lie two very different, very vivid pictures about two very different ideas of reality and where those two ideas lead. And what's, what's, what's really remarkable to me, though, about this psalm is that it wastes no time in making what is really a very stunning assertion. In fact, the first verse, the first line, the first, uh, yeah, just the first line of the whole book of the Psalms makes this assertion, and I'll put it in these, in these words, in these terms, that happiness is possible, but it's not natural. Happiness is possible, but not natural. Now, that's, that's a stunning assertion uh, for two reasons. Let's, let's start with the idea that happiness is possible. First, where do, I, where do I see that here in this text? Well, it's the first word in the book of the Psalms. It's the word blessed, and the word blessed simply means happy. Now, look, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not oversimplifying any profound theology when I say that. Uh, the word blessed means happy. In fact... You can't see it in the English translation, but the Hebrew word in this verse, uh, in this uh, for the word blessed, is a plural word, and so the best translation for it is, "Oh, the happiness many times over." And he's like, he's like profoundly happy. He's saying that it's possible. Now that's a stunning assertion. Why do I say that's such a stunning assertion? Well, I, I think most people in America. Not, not all, but, but, but I think most people in America, unless you grew up in very tragic cir- circumstances, I think most people start out thinking that happiness is just a natural byproduct of life. That unless you just screw your life up in some major way, you will end up happy. It's just, it's just natural. That's, that's what, the way most of us grow up thinking. But the longer you live and the more you experience life, you begin to become more cynical about happiness because it proves to be far more elusive than you once thought. In fact, one, uh, one prominent psychology professor, very well known for his studies in happiness, his, he's got the tragically difficult name to pronounce that goes like this, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi. That's his name. Wait till you see how it's spelled. Anyway, he wrote this about happiness in, in, in his book, Flow. He wrote this. He said, Despite the fact that we are now healthier... 
and grow to be older, despite the fact that even the least affluent among us are surrounded by material luxuries undreamed of a few decades ago, and regardless of all the stupendous scientific knowledge we can summon at will, people often end up feeling that their lives have been wasted, that instead of being filled with happiness, their years were spent in anxiety and boredom. And look at how that name is spelled. And I had to pronounce... You know how many times I had to work this week on how to pronounce that name? Okay, what he's saying in this verse, or excuse me, in that little passage from his book, Flow, is that that there's, there's nothing that makes you more cynical about the possibility of happiness than having everything that you've always thought would bring happiness only to find yourself still profoundly unhappy. I mean, that makes you cynical. We are more educated than ever before in history. We are healthier right now than any other point in human history. We understand more about the science of the universe right now more than any other point in human history. And we still aren't fundamentally and consistently happy. And and, and many of us, especially among the brightest and the most successful and the most talented in our culture, have come to the cynical conclusion that happiness just isn't possible. So so the idea that the author of Psalm 1 uh, presents here, that happiness is possible, is to many people just a stunning assertion in and of itself. But the other part of this text that is so stunning is the assertion that he makes that happiness is not a natural byproduct of life. I know it's really hot in here right now, isn't it? Okay, I'm hot, you're hot. Uh, We just got to fight through it because they've got the air conditioning on. It's so humid because of all the weather and stuff. It's just not going to get any better. So just fight through it, okay? Um, maybe I should say, it's going to get better. Just hang on, and it'll get better. That's a more positive way of saying it, isn't it? Yeah. But it's not. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's going to be this hot. Um, you're very unhappy about that. I understand. Yes. Yeah. So this assertion that happiness is not a natural byproduct of life, that's a pretty stunning assertion. And... This is where I want you to, I want you to see something. And I, will ho- I, I hope that you'll listen to me on, on this. And so I'm going to pause here for dramatic effects so that you will listen. The longer I live and the more I study the gospel and all of the gospel's implications, the more I realize that in every sense, the wisdom of the gospel is more sophisticated and more nuanced than any of the great philosophical wisdom of the world. And Psalm 1 is a tremendous example of that because here on the one hand, Psalm 1 disputes the idea of the cynic that happiness is impossible. But on the other hand, it also disputes the idea of the young idealist who believes that happiness is a natural byproduct of life. See, it's it's nuanced. It It says, happiness is possible. Cynic, you're wrong. But young idealist, you're wrong too. It's not natural. And you see, you can see that when the author says, right after telling us that happiness is possible, when he starts with the word blessed, right after that, the first thing he does is he tells us where happiness is not found. Did you notice that? He says it's not found where natural human instinct says it's found. He says, blessed or, ha- blessed or happy, okay, is the man who, notice, does not. 
So by using those words, does not, he's, he's signaling that it's, okay, whatever your instincts are, whatever your instincts tell you about happiness, it's not found there. He says, he says, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Now, don't get thrown off by those words, wicked and sinners and mockers. I know at first glance, they kind of make you think of the most uh, base elements of society, like satanic cults and murderers and rapists and pedophiles, whatever. That's, that, that's not what those words refer to. These are simply people who have had no life-changing no life changing encounter with the gospel. And as a result, their ideas about happiness come from a very broken human place. Uh, these people might be very moral people. This text that refers to wicked and sinners and, and ungodly, they might be very moral people. They might be teachers. They might be... Your very nice neighbors, they might be uh, your doctor, they might be your philosophy professors, they might be your uh, they might be policemen, they might be your parents, or they might be very wealthy very famous reality TV stars what, what this passage is is challenging is it 's challenging natural human instinctive ideas about happiness. Whatever the culture says, it's, it's challenging those ideas. Now, let's use the Kardashians and the Real Housewives as an example. Let me give you a multiple-choice question, okay? Which of these best represents the Kardashians or the Real Housewives' idea of happiness? You see if you could choose. A, a rich man. B, a shopping spree. C, plastic surgery. D, being bootylicious. E, rich meditation on the wisdom of the cross of Christ, or F, A through D, but so not E. I, what, I'm not, you, you determine the correct answer to that question. Uh, I think it's fairly obvious, but I'll let you determine it. I want you to understand, I'm really not trying to pick uh, just on the Kardashians or the Real Housewives. Not at all. In reality, most of us have grown up with ideas about happiness that probably aren't that far off from the Kardashians or the Housewives. For instance, I'll just give you an example from my own life. I grew up with the idea that success in a career would bring happiness. That's what I thought. I mean, it was like, that will bring happiness. And when it didn't bring happiness, I found myself pressing on it harder and harder and harder to try to squeeze happiness out of a career and feeling more and more anxious when I couldn't get it to make me happy. So that, that, and you know where I got that? I, I got that from... Um, I got that from professors in college, I think, largely. is where I got that idea from. We've all grown up with ideas that we get from the people around us, our families, our culture, about what will make us happy. And what I want you to see in this text, you kind of get, you you see the logical progression of those ideas here in this text. The the text says, uh, he, he talks about the counsel of the wicked. You know, he says, He says, the happy man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked is speaking to the philosophical ideas about uh, human reality that that people just naturally have. And then it moves from following those ideas to standing in the way of sinners, which speaks to the behaviors that arise out of those ideas. So you see, we have these ideas, and then we act on them. And then, finally, it lands at sitting in the seat of mockers, which speaks to a settled cynicism 
that is the ultimate outcome of human wisdom about happiness, which is exactly what our author that we were talking about earlier from the book Flow, it's what he was trying to say, that you get cynical at some point when you realize that none of the stuff that you naturally thought would bring happiness does. It doesn't happen. And it lands in a place of cynicism. Now, here's the practical point, the practical application of this point, that happiness is possible but not natural. Here's what I want you to understand. The author of this psalm is saying that you will never experience fundamental and consistent happiness until you decide where you're not going to get your ideas about happiness from. So you'll never experience it until you make a decision about where you're not going to get your ideas about happiness from. You remember the old Robert Frost poem, Two Roads Diverged in a Wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. That's what this author is saying of Psalm 1. Where are you going to get your ideas about happiness? Are the Kardashians and the Real Housewives right? Does happiness come from fame? Wealth, the right man, beauty? Are the commercials on TV right? Does happiness come from driving the right car? Were your mom and dad right? Like if you grew up in a if you grew up in an Eastern Oriental background, you might have had it impressed upon you that life and happiness is all about family. And family's a good thing. But were they right? Is that where happiness comes from? From having a strong, healthy family? Is that where happiness comes from? Or like me, maybe you grew up with the idea that success brings happiness. Is that where happiness comes from? You've got to decide where you're not going to get your ideas about happiness from first. And Psalm 1 points to, admittedly, a much less traveled road about happiness. And I, I would argue, that you, you could argue that this... This is, this is, it's an ancient piece of wisdom. What could it possibly have to say uh, to life in the 21st century? You'll have to make that decision for yourself. But I would just say this. Before making a decision that this couldn't possibly speak to you, I would just say this. Listen to what it has to say that is different from the Kardashians or the housewives or anybody else in the culture. And I want you to hear this. That contrary to our culture, Psalm 1 says this. That while happiness is possible but not natural. Happiness is a byproduct of the gospel. So on the one hand, it's it's possible, but not natural. On the other hand, it says it's a byproduct of the gospel. Now, where do I see that here? Well, the, the text says, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, those of you who have some understanding of the chronology of the Bible might be tempted here to kind of take issue with me here that Psalm 1 has anything to say about the gospel. But you're probably thinking that because you know that the cross of Jesus hasn't happened yet when the Psalms were written. Uh, The cross is still future for the psalmist. However, because we live on the other side of the cross, because the cross has already happened, we have to read all of the scriptures, pre-cross and post-cross, in light of the cross of Jesus. So when he says, when the psalmist says that the happy man delights in the law of the Lord, we know that the real message of the law of the Lord, the real message of the Mosaic law, was that God in his great love for humanity planned to send a redeemer to do for man what man could never do for himself. That's the gospel. 
And so what this passage is teaching is that the one who experiences genuine, fundamental, consistent happiness is one, and I know this sounds so countercultural, but is one whose delight is in the gospel. And he meditates on the beauty of it day and night. That the one who's fundamentally happy is the one who can't, he can't stop thinking about the gospel. Uh, he's blown away by it. He's blown away by the gospel intellectually and emotionally and psychologically. It's like he can't believe it because it seems too good to be true that he's been accepted by God, that his status as a member of God's family can never change no matter what he does, that, that God's love for him never wavers, that God delights in him with all of his imperfections, that he's been given the very life of Jesus Christ. And all of this because... Jesus, in just one supreme and ultimate act of love, stepped in and took the punishment that he deserved. What God does that? And this this text is saying that happiness is a byproduct of that. That It's a byproduct of delighting in the gospel. And look, as I said, it's not a natural thing to think about or to be consumed with the gospel. It's just not. The Bible's clear that something supernatural has to happen to bring a person to a place that they care about the gospel. But when the supernatural happens and a person encounters the gospel, there is this complete paradigm shift in the depths of their soul that causes them to think about reality in a way that they would have never thought about it before. Now, I do want you to understand something. That just because this text says that happiness is a byproduct of the gospel, it doesn't mean that it's an automatic byproduct of the gospel. If you're here today and you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's very possible that you're an unhappy person because it's not an automatic byproduct of the gospel. What this text teaches us is happiness has to be cultivated. I mean, yes, it's a byproduct of the gospel, but it has to be cultivated. Uh, even for the Christian, there's no, there's no happiness switch that you can flip. Do you notice that the text says that this person delights in the gospel and meditates on the gospel? Those are verbs. And they imply action. This is why having a, a consistent devotional life and memorizing Scripture is so important. They're part of cultivating a rich understanding of the implications of the gospel. I, I want you to understand that you can spend the rest of your life searching for self-help books and listening to happiness gurus tell you how to find it, but there are no quick fixes for happiness. There are no quick answers for it. At best, when you read the books and, and when, you, when you listen to the self-help gurus and, and all of that stuff, at best, all you get through some of that stuff is temporary relief from the pain that you feel. There are no switches. There are no conditions. There are no people that can make you happy. It has to be cultivated by delighting, meditating in the gospel. But here's the other thing that you've got to understand about this, even though that happiness is a byproduct of the gospel, you have to understand this, that happiness is not found by seeking happiness directly. Uh, 
it's a byproduct of the gospel. It's not the direct result of the gospel. The teaching of this passage is that the person who's happy is always the one who has stopped trying so hard to be happy. It's always the person who sat down and asked himself, what am I, what am I really living for? You see, the, the reason that some of you are so unhappy is that you've made something else in your life other than Christ your fundamental allegiance in your life. If, if you decide to seek happiness as your first priority in life, you will never find it. And here's, here's why. You, you will do like I did with success. You will put way too much pressure on those things that you believe will give happiness. Like if you believe that success is what will make you happy, you'll never be able to enjoy whatever success you experience because you will be afraid constantly that you're going to lose it and you'll keep needing more of it and you'll keep pressing harder and anxiety will eventually crush whatever happiness that you have. And if you make beauty your happiness, you'll fight a losing battle the rest of your life Frightened silly about what's going to happen when you lose that beauty. The same is true for a family um, or a man or a woman. Whatever or whoever you make the fundamental allegiance in your life, it will never make you happy if you seek happiness directly. Psalm 1 is saying that the only way to find happiness is to hunger and thirst for and delight in and think more about Christ And then you'll get happiness thrown in to boot. So you you hunger and you thirst for righteousness. And by the way, happiness comes when you do that. But if you focus on happiness, you'll never get happiness. That's what this text is saying. It sounds crazy, I know. But you can either follow the Kardashians or the real housewives or your parents or your professor's suggestions for happiness, or you can follow what the Bible says. And I would just ask you, ask yourself, how happy are you? And ask yourself this, how many fundamentally happy people do you really know? How happy do the Kardashians seem to you? How happy do the real housewives seem to you if you watch that show? And some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know, it's kind of hard to judge how happy people are. Maybe it's even a little hard to judge how happy you are. It kind of depends on how you describe or define happiness. Well, let me, let me do this. Let me just show you how Psalm 1 describes happiness, and we'll, we'll, we'll close on this. And you might want to write this down, that the way Psalm 1 describes happiness is that genuine happiness neither denies reality nor depends upon circumstances. That's how Psalm 1 describes happiness, that it neither denies reality nor, it depend, nor does it depend upon circumstances. Look at the text. It says, it says, he will be like a tree. Okay, the blessed, the happy person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in, sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is on the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. It says, he will be like a tree planted. There's the supernatural uh, aspect of this. Trees don't plant themselves, Right? He will be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Um, Have you ever known a Pollyanna? You know what I mean by a Pollyanna person? You ever known a Pollyanna? Someone who always sees the bright side of everything and always thinks everything is going to work out. You ever known people like that? They're hard people 
uh, to live with and work with because they just plain don't deal with reality. Pollyanna Christians um, really are the worst because they're, they're forever dishing out these trite cliches that undermine the real power of the gospel. So like, you know, like a Pollyanna a Christian, oh, you're sick? Oh, praise God, brother. God has told me that he's going to heal you. That's a Pollyanna Christian. Or here's another one. Oh, oh, your husband left you? Don't worry. He's going to come back with an even stronger love for you than he ever had before. Let's claim that together in the name of the Lord. That's, that's a Pollyanna Christian. But let me tell you something. That is not the gospel. Uh, that is Pollyanna hogwash. That's what that is. Um, because sometimes you don't get well. And sometimes husbands never come back. And sometimes typhoons wipe out thousands of people. I want you to understand that Pollyannas aren't happy people. They're actually very fragile people who live in denial about the things that happen in life that are very real and very horrible and for which there are no cliches that will bring comfort. If you look at this text, it's teaching that the happiness that comes from Christ doesn't have to deny reality. Notice it says that the one who delights in the gospel is like a tree. They're solid. They're deeply rooted. And it says that they're like a tree that yields its fruit. Notice the words, in season. And then it says, whose leaf does not wither. Trees experience affliction. They do. I mean, there are droughts and there is extreme heat that trees have to endure and there are powerful winds and freezing temperatures and sometimes where there are seasons where there is no fruit. In other words, this tree goes through deep distress and yet its leaf doesn't wither. It, 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 it doesn't die. Which, what the author of this text is trying to say is that the happiness that Christ offers doesn't require us to deny that there are tragically painful times in life. But even that, that, even during those tragically painful times in life, there is an internal resource upon which the person who meditates and delights in the gospel, there's an internal resource upon which that person can draw deep into during those times of real distress that keeps his leaf from withering, from shrinking, from withering into the cynicism that says that happiness is just not possible. That's what it's saying. What do you say to yourself when you're going through distress? What are you saying to yourself? What do you say to yourself? When you go through times of deep distress, you have to delight in and meditate on the gospel through those times. You have to remind yourself over and over and over of the implications of the gospel. God, I know that I know you have made me your child. I know that, that nothing I'm going through is too difficult for you. That's an implication of the gospel. Nothing has caught you by surprise. Christ's death means that you can even redeem this 
that I'm going through. You strengthened him on the cross. You can strengthen me to get through this. You're still real. You're alive. You care. You accept me regardless of what I just lost. You have a plan for my life. These are the things you see. These are the, this is what it means to meditate and delight, to meditate, meditate in and delight in the gospel. These are the things that when you go through difficult, distressing, terrible times that you have to preach to yourself. Like a tree, when you're going through difficulty and distress, you draw down deeper and deeper upon the roots that are nourished by the living water that is now in you. Because of your relationship with Christ. And those of you who've done that, those of you who've been through those kinds of times in your life where you've really had to draw upon the resources of the gospel inwardly, you know that you've experienced a, a kind of happiness, even not about your circumstances in those times, but you've experienced a kind of happiness that transcends, that transcends your circumstances that you could have never experienced otherwise. And, and though you'd never want to go through those circumstances ever again, you, you wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Because of what you experienced during that time and how you had to draw deeper down and how you found something new in your relationship with Christ as a result. You know that feeling. This, this psalm is not teaching a, a a Pollyanna happiness. But I also want you to understand, it's not, it's not describing a happiness that depends on circumstances either. This is a happiness that is outside of all circumstances. This is the kind of happiness that can say, for instance, it could say, yes, it's horribly disappointing that I can't have a baby and, and it makes me terribly sad and many of my dreams have been dashed. And yet... This is a kind of happiness that can say, I know I'm a child of the Father who wants only my good. And so even in this, I can experience a peace and contentment that is supernatural. You see, it's, it doesn't depend on circumstances. It doesn't deny reality, but it also doesn't depend on circumstances either. This, this is the kind of happiness that can say, my husband has turned to drug addiction. Or he's turned to another woman. And that hurts deeply. And I'm not going to be Pollyanna about it. And there's no great promises about what's going to happen. And yet, on the other hand, there is a relationship, an allegiance that I have that runs much deeper even than that, that I can never lose. And I can feel a kind of peace, even in the midst of this, that is supernatural. This is what this text means when it says that that the blessed, the happy person that meditates in the gospel and delights in the gospel is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither no matter how distressing the circumstances. How many people do you know who are that fundamentally and consistently happy that they don't have to deny reality but that regardless of the circumstances, they still experience this rich happiness. Are the Kardashians that happy? Are the real housewives that happy? Are you that happy?
Is your happiness able to face reality? Does your happiness depend on circumstances? Is it always swinging back and forth? I'm happy, I'm unhappy. I'm happy, I'm unhappy. If so, you've never really experienced happiness. Not the kind of happiness that the gospel offers. At best, all you've ever experienced is just temporary relief from some pain. Psalm 1 is saying, you can be happy. It's possible. It's not found in any of the places that people naturally look. It's found in, it's found in delighting in and meditating on the gospel of Jesus Christ, cultivating an appreciation of its implications in your life. And I want to tell you something. You need this. You need this kind of happiness. And I hope that you'll come and get it. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? If you have never met Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never trusted in Him, you can do that right now in the privacy of your seat. It begins by just simply acknowledging that that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for, for your sin. And that it's, it's unconditional. His love for you is absolutely unconditional. And the Bible says that if you come to a place where you say, yes, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, Jesus, I want you to be the fundamental allegiance of my life. I trust you. I believe that your death on the cross was enough for my sin. Uh, the Bible says that at that moment, you become a child of God and your status with God can never change. And that God becomes your father and that you have a relationship with him that will last for all of eternity. And if you've never made that decision, this would be a good time to do it. If you've made that decision before, know that you're not done, man. There's a cultivating of that relationship that you need to, that you need to do. And the byproduct of cultivating that is genuine happiness. And need to meditate on and delight in that gospel in the depths of it and all of the implications for your life. Lord Jesus, for those that are here today that may never have made this decision before to trust in Christ, I pray that today in the privacy of their seat that they would do so. For those that have, I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to continue to plumb the depths of the gospel in, in a deeper and more profound way. Lord, we worship you today. You are the fundamental allegiance of our lives. That's what we want. Functionally, we all live differently than that. But Lord, we want to make you the fundamental allegiance of our lives, not happiness. We, we come to you and we say, you don't be our Lord. You don't owe us anything. Uh, if we get happiness thrown in, great, but you don't owe us happiness. We just want to serve you. Lord, let, let that be the cry of our heart. And it's in Christ's name that we pray.